Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all. All right. Can I uh, ask you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 31? Genesis 31, starting with verse 1. Now, Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has acquired all this wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. Well, sure, because Laban was first and most for Laban, obviously, all right? And as long as Jacob's service blessed Laban, his countenance was good towards Jacob. But you remember in chapter 30 how at one point Jacob came to Laban and said, Look, I've served you at that time for 14 years for Rachel and um, Leah. He said, you know, I need to go back to my own country and begin to work on my, I got to start putting something aside for my family. And Laban came to him and said, look, he said, I know that God, in, in, in the Hebrew is, I know by divination. So Laban was not a believer. He understood who the God of Jacob was, but he was not a believer himself. But he said, look, I know through divination that God has blessed me because of you. Tell me what you want. I'll increase your pay. I'll do whatever you want. Just stay. What do you want me to give you? Now, that was six years earlier than this place in Genesis 31. At that time, Jacob felt it was time to go home. And then at that moment, though, as we just said, Laban offered him a pay raise, basically, to stay. I wonder how many Christians have, have felt led by the Holy Spirit to leave their current job to go somewhere else. Maybe the Lord is leading them. Maybe he's leading them into uh, ministry. And yet they go to their boss. The boss says, look, you're so valuable. Let me give you a raise. And they say, well, that's pretty good, a raise. I, maybe I will stay. Maybe God's in it. Maybe I should just stay right here. I don't know. But for all the years that Laban benefited from Jacob's hard work, his countenance towards Jacob was good. But since God started to expand Jacob's flocks and herds while decreasing Laban's, uh, not so much. Laban was not as keen on Jacob as he once had been. In fact, neither was the whole family. Laban's sons were down on Jacob too. They were the ones who would be the, to inherit their father's wealth, which was rapidly diminishing. So their, all of their countenance was not like it had once been toward Jacob. In fact, they were all scowling at him most of the time now. But verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field, to his flock, and said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable toward me as before. But the God of my father has been with me, and you know that with all my might I have served your father. Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not allow him to hurt me. I got to tell you, I'm a little bit taken back uh, that Jacob would be upset with Laban for deceiving him when the whole reason Jacob was living with Laban was because Jacob deceived his father, Isaac, into thinking Jacob was Esau. And through it, he stole Esau's blessing. Uh, it's just as my pastor used to like to say, it's amazing how bad my sins look when you're committing them. When I'm committing them, they don't look so bad. Very gracious with myself. But I'm very perceptive when my sins are being committed by you. So Jacob says, look, he calls his wives. Now, he had two wives, two concubines. Rachel, Leah were his wives. Bilhah and Zilpah were his concubines. He only called Rachel and Leah out to the field where he was shepherding. He wants to talk to them. He wants to do it privately. He doesn't want this conversation overheard. Probably didn't include uh, Bilhah and Zilpah because they were given to his wives by Laban. They were servants of Laban at one time. And maybe he thought, you know, their loyalties might still be towards Laban. I, I'm not taking any chances here. Now, an interesting thing I found out that Mesopotamia, this, they were living in Mesopotamia at this time. Uh, the Mesopotamian legal code, the Code of Hammurabi, stipulated that a man really couldn't take his 
wives away from their family unless they agree to it. So he wants to, to run this by the girls. He calls them out to the field where they'll be alone, and he presents his case to them. He said in verse 7, Again, your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times, that God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. If he said thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Now you remember in chapter 30 when Jacob told Laban, look, I want to get out of here. I want to go back home. I want to start working on my, you know, my wealth, my inheritance for my family and so on. And Laban said, no, stay with me. Uh, whatever you want, I'll give you. What, do you. what do you want to stay and, and keep taking care of my herds? And Jacob said, look, I don't want you to give me anything. Here's what I propose. Let me go through the flocks and pick out all the spotted and speckled sheep and goats, all the brown ewe lambs. Let, give them to me. They will be my weights. And from that moment on then, anytime the flocks produce, you know, speckled or spotted, uh, streaked goats or sheep, brown little ewe lambs, uh, those will be my wage. Okay, that's what I want. If you want me to still work for you, that's all I'm asking. Now, Laban was tickled. Because most of the sheep and the little ewe lambs were white, and most of the goats were black in that culture. So Laban thought, this kid been out in the sun too long. This kid, he's 90 years old. Uh, this guy's been out in the sun too long. This is a great deal for me, a terrible deal for him. Because most, it was rare to have sheep, goats, speckled, spotted, you know, little ewe lambs, uh, brown. Uh, he thought, this is great. Well... As you know the story, uh, then God began to bless those animals that belonged to Jacob. In other words, Jacob got the streaked, speckled, spotted goats and sheep and so on. So God began to cause Laban's herds and flocks to produce the streaked, spotted, and so on. Well, when Laban saw that, that most of the flock had begun to produce the very colored animals that belonged to Jacob, he said, no, wait a minute. Uh, I want the speckled and spotted now. You can have the solid colors. All right, well, what was Jacob supposed to do, right? So then God began to bless whatever belonged to Jacob. Then the flocks began to produce those colors in abundance. Laban comes back and says, hold it, time out. Uh, change my mind. I want, you know, this. Anytime the flocks began to produce an abundance of one kind of an animal, color-wise, then Laban would take those for himself and say, no, Jacob, you can have these other ones now. But every time he did that, God blessed whatever belonged to Jacob. And thus, the flocks of Jacob began to expand more and more, and the flocks and herds of Laban began to diminish. This happened ten times, this back and forth. That's what Jacob is talking about. You've changed my wages ten times. If you said, I can have this kind, and the flocks began to produce, then you took those and said, no, you start having these now. So verse 9, he tells his wives, God has taken away the livestock of your father, and has given it to me. And it happened at that at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift your eyes now and see. All the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. What is going on? Well, here's what I believe God is saying to, to uh, Jacob. When Jacob originally cut this deal with Laban and said, look, all the speckled and spotted goats and sheep are mine and so on, uh, what he did was, and we don't really understand if he knew a little something from all his years of shepherding, he took some branches and he cut strips in them, stripped the bark off so they were streaked. And every time the animals would drink water, he would lay the streaked rods in the water trough, or he would put them up where they could see them. And when they, uh, when they uh, would bear their young, I don't know if Jacob thought they were looking at the rods and, and that was producing the streaked and spotted sheep and goats. I don't know. But God appears to him in a dream and says, look, I, it was me. Okay? All your little planning and, you know, this little voodoo stuff you got going on, thinking, you're doing it? Let me just get something clear with you. I did it. I saw what Laban was doing to you. I took away his wealth and gave it to you. 
you know, we work our little plans out. We got our little schemes. We think, oh, this, this is going to work, you know, and maybe it does. And we want to pat ourselves on the back. And God taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, remember me? You're not doing anything that I'm not allowing or blessing, okay? It's all me. Well, verse 13, God said to him, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. This was 20 years later, 20 years after God had appeared to Jacob in Bethel. Bethel means house of God. And the only reason that Jacob had come to Bethel in the first place, at that time the city was called Luz, as we studied, was because he was running from Esau, who wanted to kill him for stealing his blessing. Some have argued, and I'll let you wrestle with her whether or not they're accurate with this, but some have argued that Jacob was not in God's perfect will. Underline perfect will. He was in God's permissive will, but he was not in his perfect will when he left Canaan to live in Haran, Mesopotamia, for these 20 years. And while it is true that God did bless him there, I mean, God gave him two wives, concubines, that bore Jacob 12 sons um, that would become the 12 patriarchs, the tribes of Israel. So uh, I'm not saying that God didn't bless him while he was in Mesopotamia. Look, God always tries to bless us at whatever level of obedience and faith we choose to live at, even if we're not in his perfect will, because of we're afraid of we're afraid to walk by faith completely or, or whatever. Uh, there are times when we're not in sin, but we're not living in God's perfect will either. Now, if we choose to live outside God's perfect will, he still tries to bless us as much as he can. He blessed Jacob, obviously. But, you know, God is never satisfied until we are right in the center of his will for our lives where he can bless us as much as he wants to bless us. And the only way God could bless us perfectly is if we are in his perfect will. So after 20 years now, God appeared to Jacob at Bethel. That's why he named the place Bethel. I didn't realize God was in this place. This is the house of God. He called it Bethel. Then he goes on to Haran, stays 20 years. And now God basically taps him on the shoulder and says, Jacob, remember me? I'm the God of Bethel. I'm the God of Bethel. It's time for you to get back to the land of promise. It's time for you to go back to where your inheritance is. You are part of a family that I have chosen to bless, a covenant that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and now with you, and will continue through your 12 sons, uh, a covenant where I will give you the land of promise, Canaan, to be a perpetual possession, and I will bless you in that place. It's time for you to stop fooling around. Stop living a life where you're not truly trusting me. Didn't I tell you I was going to protect you? You ran from your brother Esau. He says, it's time to get back to Bethel. I think God would be saying that to a lot of Christians who are not really in his perfect will. I mean, they're not living in sin. Maybe God's called them to make a break with the old life completely, and maybe he is calling them into maybe uh, pastoral ministry or on the mission field. That's his perfect will, but they're afraid. They're scared. You know, it's, it's a life of faith. I'm not sure I can live like that. I'm, I'm terrified, you know. And so they run from the call of God. And God blesses them. God watches over them. And they grow. But at one point, God beckons them to come to the perfect place his perfect will for their lives and that's just up to every christian to decide and to pray about am i in god's perfect will am i exactly where he wants me to be or am i in his permissive will now if you're living in sin that's flat outside his will okay i'm not even going there we all know that's wrong but during that time god has blessed jacob he has watched over him he said laban he tried to mess me up man he tried to take advantage of me told his wives, but the Lord has protected me from your father. So God was watching over Jacob even in Mesopotamia. Verse 14, Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, Whatever God has said to you, do it. 
I love it when my wife says, right on, honey. Good decision, go for it. Wow. See, then I think, wow, I'm in God's will. Because, you know, a lot of times she says, honey, you sure about that? Oh, brother, okay, I better go pray some more. But, you know, when she says, honey, go for it, I feel good. Then. I feel like I'm right where I need to be. Here's what the girls were feeling. You have to understand the culture. First of all, Laban made Jacob work for both of his daughters a lot longer than he should have. Um, seven years for each of the gals, 14 years total. That was uh, excessive. But here's the way it worked. That was the dowry, basically. And here's the way the dowry worked in those days. A dowry amounted to life insurance in advance or, or alimony in advance. In other words, you know, if a guy decided at one point he didn't want to be, stay married to his wife, he could divorce her for any reason. She had no recourse, though. She couldn't fight him in court. She couldn't get alimony. He didn't have such a thing back then. So the dowry was supposed to be kept by the father. The group would pay it to the father. He was supposed to keep it for her so that in the case her husband divorced her, he could give her this and she would be sustained by it. Or if he died, the father would give it to his daughter and that would be the way she was taken care of. Uh, but here's what the girls are saying. Our, fathers didn't, our father has not treated us like daughters. Okay, He's treated us like we were property, like we were slaves. He sold us to Jacob. We were a commodity, all right, not as daughters. He sold us to Jacob for an excessive amount of money, and instead of keeping it for us in case something happened to our husband uh, or he left us for some reason, he's taken it and spent it on himself or put it into his treasury, whatever you want to call it, right? So the girl said, look, everything that our father has in the way of prosperity, Jacob, God has used you to give it to him. We kind of feel this is ours anyways. So do what God tells, has told you to get out of here. Let's go, is the idea. Now, before we go on, guys, several commentators have pointed out that in this passage we see the guidelines for discerning God's guidance. Uh, or in other words, we see some principles that will help us determine God's will when we're making important decisions. I'll just read them to you quickly, okay? It comes right out of the passage. Number one, there needs to be a definite conviction in our hearts that God desires us to take a certain course of action. Now, Jacob felt in his heart it was time to make a move. The countenance of Laban and his sons are not like they used to be toward me. I'm feeling like we need to make a move. Jacob had that in his heart. Number two, our circumstances necessitate a change or an important decision. And again, Jacob saw that things were not like they used to be. That, you know, again, Laban's attitude towards Jacob was becoming more and more hostile. Uh, in Jacob's mind, you know what? This is really causing me to think we need to get out of here. Number three, a word from God through Scripture or through another believer or both. That's what you want to look for as well. God spoke to Jacob directly probably won't speak to us directly, but will speak to us from his word, That will something that will kind of confirm what we're feeling about making this decision or making a change. And then finally, as I said, a confirmation from another believer, especially if you're a husband trying to lead your family, and your wife comes to you and confirms that she believes God is leading you to do this thing or make this decision, while not being essential, is very helpful. Very helpful. Now, author Arthur W. Pink said, it is not always that God gives us a manifestation of these principles. Not, they won't always be there uh, at the same time, not all, but sometimes. But whenever they do combine and are evident, we may be sure of his will in any given circumstance. So my goodness, if you have three of these, and especially four, all working together at the same time, what Pink is saying, and I, I agree, probably God's in it. Okay, probably the Lord's in it. And if you take a step in faith and God's not in it, if your heart's right, he'll show you quickly and you can readjust and get back and pray some more. Anyways, Genesis 31, verse 17. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions, which he had gained, his acquired livestock, which he had gained in Padanaram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had, Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. 
And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, and that he did not tell him that he intended not to leave, but to flee. Okay? I mean, Jacob knew well the character of his father-in-law, Laban. He rightly believed that if he had gone to Laban and said, Look, uh, we're going to take off now. We're going to go. Been nice. Been real. Thank you. We're out of here. We're going back to Canaan. Jacob knew his father-in-law that Laban probably would not have let him go before taking his wives, his children, and all his possessions and sending him away empty. Jacob knew that. So he figured the best way to get away was to sneak away. (laughs) And the best time to do that is when Laban was gone shearing his sheep, which they did every year. It was a big deal, a big time of the year. They would shear all the sheep. Of course, the wool was used for money. They would sell it. Sometimes they would, would use some of it to make clothing and all. It was a big deal. It was a real money-making time. The harvest of crops was also a big deal uh, in that uh, agrarian culture and all. But um, again, Jacob concocted this plan to kind of sneak away while Laban was out shearing his sheep. Now, look, the plan was was logical, was practical. I mean, it was a good plan from a human standpoint. The problem is it didn't take God into consideration. The God who said in verse 3, Jacob, go back to Canaan. I'm going to be with you, which implies I'm going to watch over you. Verse 21, so he fled with all he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. Gilead was about 300 miles away from Haran. And and he's got a lot of, we're going to see in a moment, he's got a lot of animals. So I think the best time they could make was about 20 miles a day, and that would be pushing it. But uh, 300 miles, verse 22, and Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his brethren with him, and pursued him for seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. So the Lord is basically saying to Laban, Look, don't you dare threaten him. Don't speak bad to him. And don't try to convince him to come back and work for you some more. Don't speak good to him. Leave him alone. Okay? Laban didn't know the God of Jacob, not intimately, but he knew enough about him to know you don't mess with this God, all right? He's a powerful God. And so Laban respected what God told him, and God was not, notice, God is not sweet-talking, Laban. I mean, you know, some people have this concept of God that he only speaks in very sweet terms. Basically, he's come to Laban and said, look, you say anything to this guy, good or bad, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to wipe you out. That's pretty powerful, Okay. Verse 25, so Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, (laughs) I love this, what have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs. I would have thrown a party. Timbrel, harp. And you did not, did not allow me to kiss my sons. My grandsons is the idea. My daughters, the granddaughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. What a lying, phony hypocrite Laban is. Trying to make Jacob feel guilty for sneaking away. Jacob knew Laban. That's why he snuck away. Because he was Laban. But Laban tries to make him feel guilty. Amazing how there are some people that can cheat you up one side down the other and then make make you feel guilty about it. Amazing. You didn't give me a chance to say goodbye. We could have had a party, a going away party. Yeah, right. Sorry I missed that. Okay. Verse 29. Laban said, it is in my power to do you harm. He was a powerful guy. He had a lot of servants. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good or bad. And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. I know you're wanting to get home because you haven't seen your dad in 20 years. I understand that. But why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. No doubt he would have done that. With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. 
For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them, has stolen these gods. Let me just say up front, if someone can steal your God, not much of a God. Okay? Uh, the word gods there is the Hebrew word teraphim. And in this case, they were small carved idols. They had larger versions, uh, versions I should say. Uh, later on in uh, David's day, when he snuck away his daughter uh, Michal, put one of these gods, okay, uh, a large version in bed with some hair on it to fool her father into thinking David was sick, right? So they had larger versions. These seem to have been uh, the smaller kind, small carved images or idols, uh, kind of like shelf knickknack size was the idea, okay? Now, why did Rachel take them? There are several reasons, several possibilities suggested by what is called the Nuzi tablets, giving us insights into the cultural things of, the, of that day. Uh, first of all, the possession of the, and this is one I have heard, the possession of the family gods strengthen your claim to an inheritance. They were kind of like the title deed to your property and things. Whoever owned these teraphim, these little idols that were your household gods, that was proof that they owned the property in a sense, okay? So she could have taken them to, you know, she wasn't getting any inheritance from her father, took the gods, because someday when Laban kicks off, then Rachel brings out the gods, says, look, this is all mine, I guess. I don't know. Another possibility is that Laban used them for divination. I know that was true. He said earlier through divination, they know that he knew that God had blessed him for Jacob's sake. So she knew that her father used them for divination, and maybe Rachel was trying to thwart her father's ability apparently you know well it was demonic and demons have power demons give insights to people that use divination it's not like it's all magic tricks and things there is some real power that goes along with these things and she had no doubt seen her father use these little gods to determine future events or for divination and so she figured look we're going to get out of here we don't want him i don't want him checking with these little idols to find out where we are i'm going to just take them or number three she took them just for spite, okay? Uh, so, you know, Rachel could demonstrate her contempt for Laban's gods. I don't know. You can choose which one you think fits. I don't know. I do know this. In my studies, I came to find out that uh, the law of that region, Mesopotamian law, dictated that anyone who stole another person's household idols uh, was worthy of death. That's why Jacob says, look, I don't know about your idols. I didn't take your idols. Look, search around here. Anyone who has them, you can put them to death not knowing that Rachel had taken them. Verse 33, And Laban went into Jacob's tent. And, and notice, I'm convinced that Laban went into these tents and he tore them up. He tore, I mean, he just tore them up, which really infuriated Jacob, as we're going to see in a moment. All right. So he went to Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, into the two maids' tents, uh, but he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now, Rachel had taken the household items and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, uh, Let it not displease my lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. I'm, it's my menstrual cycle. Sorry, dad, can't get up. You don't want that. Plus, PMS is a bear right now. I, I may hurt you. I, the camel, the saddle is here because I killed the camel. Looked at me cross-eyed. Campbell's done. I don't want. I don't want anything to happen to you. So let me just sit here and just look around me there. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. Now, this was the last straw for Jacob. His property. He's been accused of things he didn't do. He's been cheated for twenty years, right? His patience has been stretched to the limit. Now he's been accused of taking something he didn't take, even though Rachel did. Uh, Laban comes threatening him, ripping the tents apart. That was it. Last straw for Jacob. He actually blows a gasket. Verse 36, Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young. Well, that's quite a statement. That shows real diligence on the part of Jacob as a shepherd. He watched over these animals with so much care that the, and it was common for animals to miscarry, okay, 
Jacob says, they didn't miscarry. I watched over them so well, they never miscarried. He said, um, they didn't miscarry their young. Uh, end of verse 38. And I have not eaten the rams of your flock. Uh, it was common for a shepherd to uh, live off the flock. Uh, that meant that, you know, he would, uh, and usually they would kill an animal that had been torn a little bit by another animal, so they would take it and kill it and use it for food. Uh, and the wool, of course, they were able to take and use for clothing and so on. Uh, Jacob says, look, I, I haven't done any of that, okay? He said, verse 39, that which was torn by beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. It was common for a shepherd. I mean, you know, animal, wild animals would get the sheep all the time. It was common that the owner of the flock bore the loss. Jacob said, no, I bore the loss. I took it out of my wages. He said, um, you required it from my hand. So Jacob said, yeah, I gave it because you required it. I mean, Laban was, he was going to take advantage of Jacob any way he could. Any way he could. Uh, again, common practice of a wild animal took a lamb or something out of the flock and ate it. Uh, the shepherd was not responsible. He couldn't watch all the sheep all the time. But Laban required Jacob to pay for it out of his own pocket. He said, um, whether it was stolen by day or stolen by night, there I was. I had to, you know, I had to take the loss. He said, um, in the day the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. It wasn't easy to be a shepherd. Jacob worked hard. Uh, you know, I'm not saying he was an overly spiritual man, but he was a hard worker. He was a hard worker. And that's what he's talking about. He said, man, I was out there in the blazing sun, the frost of night, rain, wind, everything. I was out there serving you faithfully. Verse 41, thus I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, fear of Isaac was just a title for God Almighty, uh, Isaac's God, if the God of my fathers had not been with me, surely now you, have, you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Now, Jacob is done. He is not about to let Laban play the shyster anymore in his life. That's it, okay? 20 years of this guy, you know, classic con man, you know, telling Jacob how much he loved him and, oh, you know, but all the while Laban just using Jacob to line his own pockets. And Jacob was not about to let Laban put him on a guilt trip, not anymore. That was it, all right? So he lets him have it, you know? He sees through this phony hurt, you know, and feigned love. And he reads in the right act for being such a selfish, unscrupulous employer, let alone father-in-law. Man, we're family. You treat me like this. A man that if God hadn't threatened with physical harm would have taken from Jacob all that he had and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 43, And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters. These children are my children. And this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. Well, not really, but that's how Laban looked at things. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to these my children whom they have born? I can't do anything about it. It's all mine, but I can't do anything about it. God has told me to leave you alone. Now, therefore, come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be for a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Jagur Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galit. And Laban said, This heap is witness between you and me this day. Therefore its name was called Galit, also Mizpah. Because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. So they named this thing, you know, Galid or Mizpah, heap of witness. Here's, <laughs> many have taken this out of context and um, have made this an endearing thing, you know, which has given rise to what's called the Mizpah coin. What is the Mizpah coin? You've seen these in Christian bookstores. It's a coin that has been cut in two. And on the back, it has this verse. 
You know, may the Lord watch over you and I when we are absent one from another. It's a, an endearing thing. You know, if you got close friends and they're going to be separated for a, a while because of what, college or something, who knows what, you buy this thing, you keep, each keep half, they each are on a chain, and you remember that, you know, that God is watching over us because we love each other. You know, guys give them to their girlfriends and so on, same thing. But that's not the context. <laughs> it's a wonderful thought. But that's not the first time I saw one in a Christian bookstore. Brought a little tear to my eye. This is pretty nice. Wow, praise the Lord. Until I read the verse, right? Thinking, wait a minute. That's, that wasn't the context. This is not a declaration of love between Jacob and Laban. It's basically a threat. That God would curse and judge either one of them if they stepped out of line. Verse 50. If you afflict my daughters, now Laban is talking, if you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, Here is this heap, and here is this pillar, which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will not pass beyond this heap to you, you will not pass beyond this heap and pillar to me for what? For harm. If you're caught, if I catch you on my side, I'm going to shoot to kill is basically the idea. All right? Verse 53, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning Laban arose, kissed his sons and daughters, and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. All right, chapter 32. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. <laughs> I think what fascinates me as I read these stories what fascinates me the most is the casual way these people back then reacted to seeing angels. Oh, look at there. <laughs> look at all them angels. Oh, Mahanim. I'd be like freaking out, man. You know? I'd be scre angels screaming and going berserk, right? Oh, angels. <laughs> they must, I don't know if they saw angels all the time. I don't know what the deal was, but he's pretty nonchalant about this thing. Uh, Mahanim means Two camps or two groups. Verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, "Thus uh, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant, he's sending servants to, he knows he's going home. And he's burned some bridges, big time. So he's trying to send a few servants to kind of smooth over things with Esau. Okay. Uh, go to Esau. And, and speak thus to my Lord, Jacob said. Uh, thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants. And I have sent, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, uh, yeah, we found your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you, by the way. And you know what? He's got 400 guys with him, 400 men. Okay, uh, so Jacob, verse 7, was greatly afraid and distressed. Let me just stop there. I mean, sure he was. Because 20 years earlier, he had run from his brother who wanted to kill him because Jacob had dressed up like Esau. Isaac was blind. He deceived Isaac into thinking he was Esau. Isaac pronounced a blessing on Jacob. And when Esau found out Jacob had stolen his blessing through deception... He said, man, I'm going to kill that guy. I'm going to kill him. Of course, Rebecca heard about it uh, and told Jacob, look, you better get out of here till things cool down. Go to your Uncle Laban's for a few weeks, you know, and then come back when things have, that's 20 years. Uh, Rebecca died while Jacob, her favorite, was in Mesopotamia. So she helped him concoct this deception to deceive Isaac and wound up paying dearly in that she never saw her favorite son ever again. But... Um, now, even though God had promised Jacob, I will be with you. That, that's all you need, right? God tells you, go over here, I'll be with you. What more do you need? All right? God told him, I'm going to 
be with you as you go back to Canaan. And then to further uh, strengthen uh, Jacob's faith, he um, has two camps of angels camp around Jacob, just to make sure Jacob realizes that God is watching out for him. Now, even though God does all this, Jacob still believes Esau is coming to take vengeance upon him for cheating him out of his blessing. So he devises a method by which he can keep half of what belongs to him if Esau should attack. Okay, I love Jacob. He doesn't get he doesn't take a rest. He doesn't take a break. He's all the wheels are always turning. He's always scheming, you know. Esau's coming, he's gonna attack. I'll divide my family and possessions into two groups. You can only attack one at a time, and the other group can escape. I'll keep half my stuff. All right. Verse 7. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies and said, uh, and he said, if Esau comes, the one company, uh, comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Now, after he provides himself a little safety net, then he prays. Then he prays. Okay? Verse 9. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. He said, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with only my staff is the idea, and now I have become two companies. Look, if you study the prayers in the Bible, this is a good one. This, this definitely shows that Jacob has grown. Uh, we don't get much insights into his spiritual life. We don't see him building any altars, digging any wells like Abraham and Isaac had done. But it's obvious that during the 20 years, I would imagine working for Uncle Laban kept him in your knees a lot. So maybe Laban was the greatest reason why he had grown spiritually. But he, he starts off this prayer very well. He approaches God in humility. He acknowledges God's kindness and blessing in his life. He does all of this before he asks the Lord for anything. That's biblical. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 100, verse 4, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. That's what Jacob is doing. He's just entering into God's presence and just humbly saying, Lord, I'm not worthy of anything. All right, you've done it all. You've greatly blessed me. I, I had nothing, and now I have great wealth is the idea. So Jacob, first of all, praises God for who he is, thanks him for all that he has done. And after that, Jacob then offers his petition to God for his help. Verse 11, he said, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob prays a very sincere and heartfelt prayer. And it's all based now, this, supp this supplication, this petition, is all based on God's promise. Now, did God need to be reminded of his promise? No. But Jacob needed to be reminded, okay, of what God had promised. See, when God makes us a promise, that's as good as done, okay? We can know for sure. If God has promised us something, we don't have to say, well, Lord, if it's your will. Of course it's his will. He already said it's his will. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's a promise of God. I don't have to say, well, God, are you going to supply my needs? Can I trust you? God says, I've already told you I will supply your needs. He said, seek first my kingdom and righteousness. You know, live at the level of the, of the spirit. And I'll provide for you everything you need in the physical. That's a promise of God, right? So Jacob comes to God and he is reminding God of his promises, which he didn't have to, but it was good. it's a good thing to do in prayer, that we remind uh, really ourselves as we pray of what God has promised us, because we built everything on that. However, even though he prays well, <laughs> he just can't help being true to his name, Jacob. He can't help himself from being true to his name as a master schemer and conniver. And so he develops a plan. Even though he prays, Lord, now I trust you. You promised to take care of me. You promised to make from me a great nation because that was the promise you gave to Abraham and then my father. 
even though he prays this prayer, does, I'm sure he trusts in the Lord to some degree, uh, he still felt the need to develop his own plan okay, to protect himself. And so verse 13, so he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me, and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he is also behind us. And so he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face, perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. So you get the idea. He wants to butter uh, Esau up. He figures the guy's coming to kill me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all these animals and divide them into groups. 580 animals, okay, at least, okay? And I'm going to divide them into these droves, or these groups. I'm going to put a servant behind each one that's driving them forward. And I'm going to put a good amount of distance between each drove. So that when the first drove gets to Esau, he says, well, who are you and what is all these animals doing? Well, they belong to your servant, Jacob. And they are a present from him to his lord, Esau. Get the language, right? And then, you know, maybe a few minutes later, the next drove comes. And the next drove, by the time, I don't know, 10, 12 droves get to Esau, Jacob figures, look, the guy's going to be so buttered up, he'll be happy to see me. <laughs> he'll be happy to see me. The idea. Now, for Jacob to give Esau at least 580 animals as a present, it meant Jacob must have owned thousands of animals. God had really blessed him. He came to Mesopotamia with just the staff. He's leaving a very wealthy man. Verse 22, And he arose that night, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. Jabbok means he will empty. He will empty. A fitting place for what was about to happen to Jacob. Verse 23, he took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. Look, Jacob needed some time to be alone. He didn't want the noise of small children or animals to disturb his solitude, a solitude he felt he needed to prepare himself for whatever was coming the next day. And he didn't know what that was going to be. If Esau was going to embrace him or kill him. Either way, he needed to get alone. He just wanted to spend the night in solitude. Here's the thing about solitude. It's often the only time when God can really speak to us. We get so busy, you know, and some people are always wanting to be around other people. Uh, I think they're afraid of silence or solitude in some ways. And so often God might be speaking, but that still small voice is not getting through all the noise. That's why it's important that we take time just to be alone with God. And if we don't take time purposely, he will find us when we're alone, you know? You ever been alone? And all of a sudden God spoke to your heart, woke you up in the middle of the night, you couldn't go back to sleep, suddenly you felt God was wanting you to spend time with him or he was speaking to your heart about something? This happens quite often. And um, he will come to us in those moments of solitude, and often he comes to us to challenge us to walk in deeper faith, to trust him in greater ways. Sometimes he may challenge us about an area of compromise in our life that is hindering our relationship with him. The goal is always to bring us closer to himself. That's what he wanted to do with Jacob. That's what he wanted to do with Jacob. The problem is with Jacob, as we're going to see, and often with us is we fight God. Because drawing closer to God involves walking in greater faith. 
And you know, our flesh resists a life of faith. It, it just does. And so we fight. Sometimes God is trying to say, look, trust me. What are you doing? You know what I've called you to do. You know my will for your life. Why are you in this place? Why are you living like this? Why are you involved in this thing? This is not my will for your life. I want you to, to, to leave this thing and draw close to me. Walk by faith so I can truly bless your life. And we fight that often because we're afraid. Just as J Jacob did. Verse 24, then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. The man, as we're going to see, was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who appears to Jacob now in one of the strangest scenes in the entire Bible. But I think you'll understand when we look at this, what was going on here. But this is what's called a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. And um, the Hebrew word for wrestled, is a word that actually means to get dusty, to get dusty. In other words, the Lord wrestled Jacob down into the dust. The Lord had to wrestle the schemer and conniver down before he could raise him up in the spirit. So the way God always works. He always has to bring us down before he can lift us up. In other words, the Lord wrestled Jacob down into the dust so he could raise him up. Verse 25, now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, when the Lord saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. The question, as I read this, the question to all of us is, what does God have to do in our lives before we surrender to him? I mean, how much do we... God will only do what he has to do. I mean, depending on how stubborn we are. If we're a little stubborn, he'll put a little pressure. If we're very stubborn, get ready. He, he pulls out all the stops, right? The question is, what does God have to do in our lives to get us to trust and obey him fully? I mean, he loves us so much. He wants to bless our lives so much that if he has to take something from us, and for some people it might be a career or a relationship or take their physical health away in some way to break them, to bring them to a place of absolute surrender and brokenness, he'll do that. Because he loves us too much to let us waste our lives on earth when this is the time we build treasures in heaven for eternity. But this idea that God afflicts to bless is foreign to a lot of people. There's a lot of people that can't equate affliction with blessing. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 71, this would be David, it is good for me to have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. David is saying, Lord, you afflicted me, but in your affliction, you broke me. You taught me that obedience was the best way to live my life, obedience to what you have said. In Psalm 51, a psalm written by David, verses 7 and 8 we read, David said, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Listen, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. What does that mean? Well, David was a shepherd. He knew this practice very well. And he's applying it to what God had done in his life. You see, if a shepherd had a little lamb that was prone to wander, no matter how many times the shepherd would take the staff and grab it around the neck and bring it back, it was always wandering. It was just the nature of some of these little lambs. So finally the shepherd said, well, there's no other way to do this. He would actually take the rod and he would break one of the lamb's legs. He would bind the leg up, take it and put it on his shoulders and carry it around until that leg healed. Then he would put the lamb on the ground, and guess what? The lamb had learned to stay close to the shepherd, never wandered away ever again. Now, people hear that and go, that sounds cruel, that the shepherd would actually break a lamb's leg. Look, what was more cruel? to inflict a little pain on the lamb to teach it not to wander or to inflict no pain on it, let it wander and get eaten by a wolf. God is saying, look, I don't want you to be devoured by the wolf, by the, by the devil. If I have to inflict a little pain in your life right now to keep you close to me, isn't that really an act of love? So this is what is the idea here. 
Verse 25, now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. Now this is the Lord talking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's Jacob talking. Now I am not reciting it properly. It sounds like that's what's going on. But Hosea tells us in chapter 12, verses 3 to 5, that Jacob was a broken man at this point, that he was weeping and pleading with the Lord to bless him. He was not, as some teach, speaking from a position of power where he was controlling and commanding the Lord. You hear some of these teachings on prayer? Look, you've got to take hold of the Lord. You've got to wrestle with him until you get your will or you get your prayer answered. No, I don't see that going on here at all. All right? Jacob is broken. The Lord is saying to Jacob, look, Jacob, you've got to let me go. We've wrestled all night. The day has come. It's time for you to face your fears. Not in the energy of your flesh, but in the power of the Spirit. It's time for you to make amends with your brother. You have skipped out of town all these years because you did wrong to your brother, and now the time has come to make it right. So you need to let me go and do what you have to do. And, and Jacob says, Lord, you can't let me go. You've got to bless me. You've, you've crippled me. You've taken away my avenue of escape. That was the problem with Jacob. He never stood still long enough to see God work. He always took things into his own hands. Things got a little rough, boom, I'm gone. You know, I'm gone, run. And God says, you know what? Now you can't run. Now you cripple. Now you're going to have to trust me, okay? You're going to have to face your fears in my strength. Look, guys, let me just say this to you. If you're wrestling with God tonight over some issue, you better hope you lose because that's the only way you win. God's will is perfect to fight for your own will means you are fighting for something less than is best for your life. You better hope and pray you lose. You better stop wrestling and start submitting, surrendering. And Jacob wrestled with the Lord from dusk to dawn. That's a long time to wrestle. I wrestled in high school, okay? After six minutes, I'm telling you, you're exhausted. All evening and all into the night, dusk to dawn, I'll tell you what, Sometimes we can be very tenacious in how much we want to wrestle with God when he's trying to bless us, trying to break us, so that we trust him and walk in the spirit. We're fighting him tooth and nail. And sometimes it goes on for years. It goes on for years. Remember what Isaiah said, the Lord said through Isaiah, Woe unto him who strives, who fights with, wrestles with his maker. It's never a good place to be in, okay? Verse 26, And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Didn't the Lord already know Jacob's name? Of course. The Lord simply wanted to hear it from the mouth of Jacob himself as a kind of a confession. What's your name? Uh, heel catcher, schemer, conniver, deceiver, master of my own life. Jacob, see, the Lord can't break us until he first will acknowledge our wrong, who we are. He said, verse 28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed, or you have struggled long enough with God and men and have prevailed. Yes, Jacob always seemed to prevail. You know why? Because he always put himself first. That was his name. Heel catcher means to trip somebody up to get ahead of them. That's who Jacob was. He always prevailed with God and with men, in a sense, because he always wanted to put himself first. He was always trying to do his will, to have things work out for his benefit. And far from praising Jacob, the Lord is saying to him, the problem, Jacob, of your life has been you have always been self-willed. That's been the problem. And the only way for me to truly bless you is to break you of self. Listen. Jacob met God at Bethel, but he didn't surrender his life to God until Jabbok, the place where God emptied him of self-will, self-effort to fill him with his spirit. The name Israel means governed or controlled by God. Governed or controlled by God. Did Jacob walk in the spirit from this moment forward? No. No. When he walked in the Spirit, he is referred to as Israel. 
And when he reverts back to walking in the flesh, he's called Jacob. But it was still a significant time in Jacob's life. Well, let's finish up. Verse 29, Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. Why didn't the Lord tell him his name? The Lord was saying, Why do you ask me what my name is? Jacob, you already know it. I'm the God of Bethel. I'm the God of the covenant that I made with Abraham and Isaac, and now with you. This is a Christophany. The Lord Jesus Christ is calling himself Jehovah. Verse 30, And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, or Penuel, for I have seen God face to face. That's how we know this was the Lord Jesus Christ, not just an angel, not just a man off the street. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. And that has nothing to do with the story, but the people of Israel adopted a little practice about not eating the... Look, how does this apply to us? Let me just say this to you. It is not until the flesh shrinks that the spirit can expand in our lives. And guys, in many ways, this was a turning point in Jacob's life. As a man crippled by God of self, he is now able to walk stronger in the spirit than he ever could in his own physical strength. Didn't Paul say that? When I am weak, then I am strong. He said, you know, I would rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ would rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities and reproaches, in needs and persecution and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, when I'm not trusting in my own strength, then I'm really strong. Then I'm really strong. Jacob was able to walk in the Spirit in a more powerful way at this point on than ever before in his life. When God breaks us, he only does it to strengthen us, to expand our witness. I'll end with this. I noticed last week that, uh, actually a couple weeks ago, that uh, Bethany Hamilton was back in the news. Now, you all know Bethany. You've all heard her story. She was the young gal that was a surfer. And in 03, uh, a shark came up and bit her left arm off. And her life was, she was a champion surfer. Uh, She felt her life was over. But she has this incredible spirit within her. She wasn't going to give up. And so she fought back, and she became a champion again with only one arm surfing. They made a movie about it, Soul Surfer, right? Powerful movie. If you haven't seen it, you really should, should get it. But as I watched that movie, I remember how that is uh, Bethany. And she's, the reason she was in the news is that she got married in 2013 and just had a baby June 1st. And so that's why she was in the news again. But it, it reminded me of this whole story. And it kind of dovetails with what we studied with Jacob, how God had to take something from him, cripple him, to use him. And as Bethany began to fight back and began to get into surfing competitions again, it went around the world what was going on. And all of a sudden she felt that her life had been over. All of a sudden she is now flooded with thousands and thousands of letters from people with handicaps who have been inspired by her not to give up, to keep pressing on. And she made this statement. She said, I discovered, and I'm not saying Bethany was like Jacob, okay, carnal. She seems to have been a very godly young woman. You don't have to be a carnal dirtbag like Jacob for God to, okay. (laughs) Bethany was obviously a very, very sweet, godly young lady. God wasn't punishing her. It's just that God wanted to use her in greater ways. And after this whole thing happened and they interviewed Bethany uh, at one point about the letters and about people that were reaching out to her and how they were encouraged through her story, she said, I realized I could embrace with one arm more people than I could ever embrace with two. God took away my arm, but through it gave me a ministry, a very powerful ministry where I'm able to be a witness for Christ. I tell people, the reason I'm doing this, the reason I can do this, 
is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He lives in my heart. And she became an inspiration and a witness to many thousands of people. Maybe you understand what Paul meant when he said, I will rejoice in my infirmities. Because through infirmity, God makes me weak physically, but strengthens me spiritually. Paul said, he has used me in ways I never could have been used apart from what he did in my life. And I, I say the same for us. Sometimes it's not that God takes away a limb. He takes away a career. He takes away a relationship that is hindering you from being all that you can be for him. He takes something that you're putting too much trust in and says, look, if you're really going to walk in the spirit, i got to take that away from you. Oh, but Lord, it hurts. It's painful. I know. But I only take away so I can multiply back. Trust me. Trust me. And so we'll leave it there. God willing, we'll pick it up next time in chapter 33. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great love. We thank you, Lord, that if we are unwilling to walk by faith, sometimes you will force the issue. But it's only because you love us. And you want to lift us higher. And Lord, if you have to wrestle us to the ground, to break us of self, that you might lift us up in the spirit and use us for your glory, Lord, we welcome that. We just want to be used. We just pray you'd use us, Lord, in greater ways, that our light would shine more brightly, that we would be used by you more effectively for your glory. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.